Hello, you're listening to Ignite from Glasgow Science Centre. My name is Patrick. In this podcast, we aim to learn more about the people behind science and what it takes to become a scientist. Today's guest is Dr Jonathan Shanklin, an Emeritus Fellow at the British Antarctic Survey, who was one of the scientists who discovered the Antarctic ozone hole many years ago, which saved the planet from disastrous consequences. If you enjoy Ignite, please share us far and wide, and don't forget you can ask us any questions on Twitter at GSC1. Jonathan, how are you? Fine, it's a foggy day here in Cambridge, but you take the weather as it comes. That's particularly true when you're in the Antarctic. Uh, It can be very (laughs) variable weather down there. One moment you've got bright sunshine and the next you're in a snowstorm. One of the features we like to do to get things kicked off is rapid fire questions, Jonathan. So I've got 10 randomly selected rapid fire questions. You don't need to answer them rapidly. However, go with your gut for the correct answer for these ones, if that's okay. Okay, as long as there's no right or wrong answer, that's okay. Oh, no, absolutely not, no. Nothing too controversial, I wouldn't imagine. First up, morning or evening? Evening. And the reason for that is that I'm an amateur astronomer and seeing the stars in the evening is much nicer than having to get up early in the morning. Tea or coffee? Tea. Stars or planets? Ooh, that's a difficult one. By and large, planets, because most of my interest is solar system and comets, and comets are closer to planets than they are to stars. Number four, mountains or rivers? Mountains. Is there life on other planets, yes or no? Almost certainly there is life on other planets. Whether it's life on the planets of our solar system is another matter, but there must be life out there somewhere. I think we're going to have to record several podcasts with you, Jonathan, because each of these questions, I feel like I could dive into a river of tangents, but I'm trying to fight against the urge of doing that. So we'll strip things right back to basics and ask you pen or pencil. These days, pencil, because you can rub it out if you get, get it wrong. I think I know the answer to this one. Arctic or Antarctic? Definitely Antarctic. And if your Wikipedia page is true, you have an area of the Antarctic named after you. But I know you're too humble to say so. <laughs> There is indeed a Shanklin Glacier. In fact, there's two Shanklin Glaciers, I think, in Antarctica. One is named after me, and the other is named after a US cartographer, I think, from the 1960s, who is, as far as I know, no relation whatsoever. If I was you, I'd be saying there was two glaciers named after me and have everyone else (laughs) none the wiser. It's very generous of you, Jonathan. Do you prefer working in a team or individually? Generally by myself, so individually but you need teams to get things done. Summer or winter? Well, winter's got more snow, which is definitely a good thing. But these days, I'm getting a bit on the old side. I find that my circulation's not as good as it was. So my fingers tend to get a little bit on the cold side during during the winter months. So summer is better for that. And summer's also better for botany, which is one of my interests. And while there are flowers these days in the winter, Um, There's not quite so many of them. And the last question. If you could time travel only once with a return journey, I should should say, (laughs) would you travel to the past or the future? I think going to the past is more useful because potentially you can then change the future. And I think a lot of our future or a lot of our present really could do with changing. And at the moment, all we're doing is talking about all the environmental issues and really not making sufficient effort to change them for the better.
And we're going to actually travel back to the past just now. We would like to speak to you about your work and particularly the, regarding the discovery of the hole in the ozone layer. Now, there will be lots of people listening to this who will know lots and lots about it. But for those who have no idea what we're talking about, could you summarise the discovery and its significance for us? I think I'll start by saying it was an accident, really. We, we didn't mean <laughs> to discover it. It started off in, in a whole variety of different directions and each individual step could have failed. So possibly one of the first things was the, the, the team down in Antarctica were reporting that they couldn't read the graphs that they used for reducing observations. And so the, the data was literally falling off the graph. And one of my jobs was to, if you like, draw new lines on the graph. Um, but the question was, why was that happening? And at that time, my role was really a, a drudge, if you like. I was looking, doing all the boring work of data validation, data quality control, everything that you need to do in order to make really high quality data at the end. And I, I was working on the, the current year's data and we got a big backlog that I was slowly working backwards in time. So I was starting at the present and going, going backwards. And we had an open day here in Cambridge where we were showing off the latest science to the general public. And at about this time, there'd been a lot of concern that the exhaust gases from Concorde the supersonic passenger jet might be damaging the ozone layer and also that gases called chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs might also be damaging the ozone layer. And I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll show people this year's Antarctic values. My boss had worked out values from 20 years previously and I'll put them on the graph and they'll be the same and people don't need to worry. And the trouble was they weren't the same in the Antarctic spring. And my boss didn't really believe this at first because he was really well versed in what things should be. And he thought, well, maybe it's just a really unusual year. Let's wait and see what next year produces. And next year, the spring also produced really low values. So we'd been doing ground truth measurements for some American satellites. And I actually wrote to a couple of the American teams involved saying that we seem to have quite low springtime ozone values. And was this confirmed by the satellites? Fortunately, they didn't bother looking because if they had, they'd have made the discovery. <laughs> and then finally, I was able to work back through all our missing data and demonstrate that the decline was systematic. So in the, the 1960s and early 70s, ozone values had been relatively normal in the spring. And then since then, they've been steadily falling pretty much on year on year. There is a bit of variation from one year to the next. But when you draw a line through the data, it was very clear that springtime ozone values over our Halley station in Antarctica were getting lower. And once I dumped the, the, the graph on my boss's desk, he was really forced to believe that either I was doing something incredibly stupid or I'd got it right. And in the end, it was published in Nature as a, a full scientific paper. The Americans went back to their satellites and said, whoops, yes, we missed that. And various other countries said, yes, that agrees with our data that we're, we're measuring from the ground in Antarctica as well. 
So it's very quickly adopted by the scientific community as clear evidence for man-made change in the atmosphere. And truly stripping it back to basics for those who are maybe listening to this without knowledge of science. Why is a hole in the ozone layer a, a problem? What happens when we have ozone depletion is that more ultraviolet light from the sun comes through the atmosphere to reach the surface. And ultraviolet light has uh, a number of effects on everything from microorganisms up to the, the largest animals, including us. So the first thing that we notice when we're getting more ultraviolet light is sunburn. And when we have an ozone hole, you can get sunburned in as little as five minutes. So it can be really fast. If you're young, you recover from sunburn pretty rapidly, but that can trigger the body so that if you get another bad dose of sunburn when you're older, that can kick skin cancers into operation. And so that was one of the worries that people had and certainly made getting international agreement much easier was that there were human health implications that were immediate consequences of the ozone hole. Other effects on people, it can effectively really make you go blind in the long term because the increased ultraviolet light coming through the lens of your eyes uh, causes cataracts, um, which is a clouding of the lens and reduces your visual acuity. And what we know today is that during the Antarctic winter, clouds form in the middle of the ozone layer. And it's on the surface of those clouds that chemical reactions take place that convert the chlorine from the chlorofluorocarbons into an active form so that when the sun comes back in the Antarctic spring, there is very rapid photochemical depletion of ozone. And effectively what's happening is that the ozone is turned back into oxygen from which it originally formed. Uh, but that formation process is mostly happening high above the tropics, so at heights above 40 kilometers, and it's being transported by wind systems in the upper atmosphere towards the poles. And that applies to both poles, the Arctic and the Antarctic, but it's only over the Antarctic that we regularly get these clouds and hence regularly get the ozone depletion. These days, the Arctic is also getting cold enough on occasion for the clouds to form, and we are beginning to see significant ozone depletion over the Arctic, which does extend as far as the northern UK and Scandinavia. So it is a, now an issue that is affecting significantly populated areas. You mentioned that it, it posed an immediate threat. Was the response to your discovery immediate? Uh, what happened next? First, a verification by other organisations to check that we, we, we really weren't wide of the mark. And I think one of the, the, the most graphic things was the Americans publishing a map of ozone amount showing what was then christened the ozone hole. And I think that was a remarkably fortuitous name that was given to us. Nobody has been able to trace who first coined the term ozone hole, but it is sufficiently graphic that it, it helped galvanize action, I think. And then combined with the link to, to human health and the fact that manufacturers had fairly ready alternatives to the chlorofluorocarbons, so they were quite quick to come on board with wanting to, to see changes. 
enabled the world's governments through the United Nations to come together initially for the Montreal Protocol and then subsequent to that a series of amendments which now mean that any chemical that's put into the atmosphere that may affect the ozone layer is eventually reduced in amount in the atmosphere and that can surprisingly include some of the gases that are responsible for climate change and in fact CFCs themselves are active greenhouse gases so by reducing their volume we've made a significant contribution to ameliorating climate change. So we're going to turn the focus of this chat to you now, Jonathan. So I'm, I'm interested in your, in your early life and particularly when did you first become aware of science as a concept? Okay, so my parents were professional geologists and so science always ran in the family. At primary school, mum was a keen amateur botanist and one of the things we had was a nature table and you had to produce a, a book of pressed flowers and so mum helped with that and although I didn't really get into botany in a serious way until the last 20 odd years it was there in the background and then moving on to secondary school it was the time of the Apollo space launches and so that was definitely a stimulus towards science. Um, Patrick Moore was often on the, the TV and as a, a very ardent champion of amateur astronomy. And that encouraged me to get into amateur astronomy. And my objective by the time I got to the sixth form was to go to Cambridge University and become an astronomer. You're still clearly very passionate about that today do you think that traces back to you know watching the the rocket take off definitely seeing the, the 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 apollo mission and the many steps that were required to get it to work successfully triggered a, a, or helped along that interest in science i think even before then i had a, a basic interest my grandparents i remember that in the attic at the place where they lived they had a sort of small laboratory, which was great for us as kids because you could go and play with things. And some of that equipment was taken back to where my parents and subsequently my sister lives. And we still got some of it in the, in the basement of the place. And I had a, a shed in, the, in the, the back garden, as it were, where I could do experiments and, and make explosives and other exciting things. And one of the aims was to try and emulate a space program at least in making your own rockets. And did you make rockets? Was that successful? Uh, we did. <laughs> they, they didn't often get that far off the ground, but they, they would climb to maybe 30 metres or so. So that, that was a start. Hopefully weren't responsible for creating a hole in the ozone layer. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned school and obviously you had a keen interest in you know, several different aspects of science, you know, from botany to, to space. But how was school for you, generally? There were some inspirational teachers, and I think having an inspirational teacher makes a real difference to what you want to do. And we had one particular guy on the, the chemistry side who was really good 
and you could see that he was enthusiastic about his, his subject. In some senses, I try and follow in his footsteps a little bit, because although having finished university, I did a teacher training course, I didn't go into teaching myself, but it has been very useful in the public facing aspect of the, the work that I do. What we do is we show how our ozone measuring machine works using very simple physics and they discover that actually they know a fair bit about it already and it's just putting those steps into place and hopefully that then encourages them in a future life of science. So what would your advice be then to a young person who loves science but isn't necessarily academical? How would they pursue a career in science or, or their love for science? Sometimes the school system just isn't for you. And in that case, these days, there are more apprentice type schemes and they are generally much more hands-on. The other way is there are a lot of science clubs around and they will welcome children because children very often ask the awkward questions. Uh, and I found that through many of the talks that I've given, the, the children can ask far harder and more testing questions of the experts. And that is really good for, for science because sometimes you get locked into a culture of the way things are done. And that can then blind you to things that are outside that culture. Whereas young people, haven't got any cultural preconceptions and can so come up with things that are actually highly relevant and advance the work. So in many ways, that's similar to the position I was in when I made the ozone hole discovery. I didn't know anything about the, the chemistry of or how things were supposed to be. All I knew is this is what the observations are telling me. And it, it took the effort to keep hammering that home. This, this is what the thing is shown. And that was why most other people were dumbfounded when we made the discovery, because the culture of the day said that if ozone depletion is occurring, it will be above the tropics at very high altitudes, above 40 kilometers, but it wasn't. It was low altitude of about 15 to 20 kilometers in the Antarctic. So people were, were looking in the wrong place because of the culture of the science of the time. And I think we're missing a, a lot today with the culture of both the economic and political aspirations, which are basically going for growth at all costs. Now, you can only have growth at all costs if you have unlimited resources. And it should be blindingly obvious that we have one planet. We're already using its resources at a rate that in the West requires over three planets. You can do that for a while, but eventually you come to a crunch. I just want to know on a human level how that felt when you made the discovery. You know, there must have been excitement for you because, you, you know, it was a revelation. But how else did you feel like did you feel like you were capable of convincing people of the significance of this discovery was it basically like any disaster film where you're the scientist that makes the discovery and you have to suddenly alert people to the dangers of it how did you feel when you suddenly realized what you'd found it, it was 
quite odd. I think initially I almost felt vindicated that I'd been pushing this idea that something was happening over the Antarctic and my boss didn't believe me. And then it got published in, in Nature. But I must admit, at that point, I really thought this was a, a small backroom discovery that um, wouldn't attract very much attention. And I was astonished when it really got taken up by politicians at all levels. So in particular, and I think this was another reason why things did get done, uh, Margaret Thatcher became interested and my two bosses went to Downing Street to brief her uh, about the discovery. And because she was a chemist herself, she was able to understand the science behind it. And I think for that reason, she was able to convince her fellow leaders that this was something that they really had to, to take action on. This is going to be incredibly difficult for you, I imagine, <laughs> because listen, having listened to you, speak in depth about the discovery and how you felt and your passion for science. I think this one might be a struggle, but it's something we like to ask all guests on this podcast. <laughs> and it's if you can sum up your work in three words. Ooh, three words. Now that is catching me um, on the fly. Three words to describe the ozone hole. An earth changing discovery. Nice. Brilliant use of the hyphen. I thought you were just going to say the ozone hole. <laughs> I, I contemplated that, but I, I think it, it, it has something that has changed the, the future of the Earth, that it has opened the eyes of people to just how easy it is to change our planetary environment. And we're not learning that lesson with climate change. Jonathan, it's been a real pleasure chatting to you, and I'm struck by you know, your chemistry teacher. I just wonder if, if they hadn't been so enthusiastic and, you know, passionate about science, whether you'd have followed your career and, and whether you'd have made your discovery. And I, I totally echo your thoughts on how important it is to, to get involved in science at a young age. Thank you so, so much for, for joining us today. Been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to Ignite. And thank you so much to our guest, Dr. Jonathan Shanklin. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with anyone else who you think might enjoy it and subscribe, save and leave a review. Bye for now.